I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. In this episode, he was known as the cult from Kuyong. He was foreign minister, led the Liberal Party twice, but never became prime minister. He was also Darren Hinch's best man at his wedding to Jackie Weaver. The remarkable life of Andrew Peacock. Sad news we've had recently with the death of Andrew Peacock. Um, And I know you were very close to him because I remember he was best man at your wedding. That's right. Or one of your weddings, anyway. Well, yeah, but the best man at my wedding was my wedding was Jackie Weaver. Yeah, it hit me very hard, actually. Surprisingly, I mean, you think uh, Andrew was eighty-two and he had not been well in recent times, and uh, so it shouldn't have come as a shock, but it really did. It gave me this real mortal coil sort of feeling. Um, couple of things. I'll go back to the beginning, but uh, I was I've been in talks with him only a few months ago. Oh no, about a year ago. Uh, he was living obviously with his with his wife Penny in uh, in Texas, and uh, we were planning for either me to go over there or him to come over here. I was going to do a one hour special on Andrew Peacock uh, for Sky because he, he he earned it, he deserved it, you know. And uh, of course, it, he said, "Oh, I don't know if I'll be able to remember everything." I said, "You'll be fine, mate. You'll be fine." And it didn't happen. But going back to the beginning, uh, I first met Andrew in uh, early nineteen seventies. He was a young upcomer, you know, a cult from Kuyong, the Sunlamp Kid. He just he was in Washington and we we're at the National Press Club, and uh, he was there. It was him and uh, Peter Costigan, who was the Melbourne Herald correspondent, White House correspondent. Uh, he was a New York correspondent. Uh, he became Lord Mayor of Melbourne, and a guy called Ross Mark, who was another Australian, who became a great Fleet Street reporter, and also became the um, the Dean of the White House Press Corps. So it was not a bad little lineup of people having a drink in the, the press club. And what hit me about the mortal coil thing is. I'm the only one still alive. Mm, mm. There were four of us. <laughs> well, look, uh, you mentioned Peter Costi in there, and uh, I sometimes, because I don't live very far away from uh, the Carlton Cemetery, I go for a walk around the Carlton Cemetery, and it's fascinating, you know, what you come across, the um, the judge who uh, sentenced uh, Ned Kelly to hang. Uh, and not far from the Prime Ministerial uh, cemetery where Malcolm Fraser is buried is a little plaque there to Peter Costigan. Obviously, his ashes were spread there, and there's just a tiny little plaque in a rose garden there. So, when you mention Peter Costigan, I always think about um, you know his time as the Lord. Well, he, he, Mayor. he died. He died doing what he did best. He was. He, he died playing the pokies, having a drink at the Hilton. I think <laughs> <laughs> that's where it happened. He liked. He liked to have a drink. Now, getting back to uh, Andrew Peacock, Andrew. back in those days when you first met him. Uh, he was sort of the heir apparent to the Liberal Party, wasn't he? Because I yeah, think but because he, he took Bob Menzies' seat, and that's he, why. Yeah, and he was young, he was uh, vibrant, he was uh, handsome. He always had that unbelievable tan. Now, that surely uh, wasn't natural. No, it wasn't. That's why I called him the Sunlamp Kid, you know. Uh, and then the photo of him, famous photo of, of Andrew walking along the beach with a towel slung around his neck, walking along with Shirley MacLaine. Um, and of course, I, he and I used to go to her opening nights together when they were when they were a, a number. And uh, I said to him once, "Why are we doing this? Because we'd sit there and be the subject of jokes written by Bob Ellis and delivered by uh, Shirley MacLaine you know, at our expense." But that was the one that she that she didn't write, but I'm sure Bob Ellis did, saying that. Um, 
he's your minister for foreign affairs. I'll give him a foreign affair, foreign affair you never forget. You know, <laughs> and it was an unusual combination. They were genuinely uh, very, very close. But it used to amaze me because Andrew's a fairly pragmatic, um, intelligent sort of person, and, and Shirley MacLaine, as well as people, believes in uh, you know that she was a princess in Egypt three hundred years ago. You know? <laughs> in, in another life, right? In another so, life, yeah. Well, I, I guess she was an attractive and uh, you know uh, well-known lady, so there were a lot of things to like about her. Oh yeah, but he, he, Peacock was a much better politician. He was an enigma in some ways. I'll tell you why. He was, he was a principled man, which is unusual sometimes for some politicians. People forget he was Minister for the Army and he resigned from Malcolm Fraser's cabinet because we were still recognising Pol Pot in the United Nations, even though the evidence had come out that Pol Pot in Kampuchea, uh, Cambodia, had murdered 1.9 million people of his own people. And we were still recognising Pol Pot and Kampuchea in the UN to appease China. Now... I raised this, I mean, Fraser banned me, wouldn't talk to me for years on radio, but then finally, when he thought he might lose the election, he, he, he sent his press man, uh, David Barnett, to around to meet me and say, can we have an interview? And we did it, and finally. And in that interview, before the Fraser-Hawke election, um, I raised Cambridgeshire with him. And uh, I, I said, why are we doing this? I mean, the man is a, is a mass murderer and we're still, Australia is, is, is giving him our, our, our imprimatur. And Fraser looked down his nose at me with what I used to call that, looking like the imperious face of a statue from the Easter Islands. And he said, well, it just is, that's why. It just is. Uh, and that's, that's, where, that's where the shame, shame, shame came from because I never said it. Visard did it and fast forward. But I did say in that interview with Fraser about Campuchia, I did say, well, Mr Prime Minister, shame Australia, shame. I remember the famous speech that Andrew Peacock made to the Parliament when he resigned from the Ministry and uh, I remember the words he used, as the, yeah. some of the words, as certain as night follows death day, a manic determination to get your own way. That's what he accused uh, Fraser of. And, of course, Fraser himself did the same thing to John Gordon only a couple of years earlier, which brought down John Gordon. Uh, John Gordon. Uh, only Andrew Peacock didn't bring down Malcolm Fraser. No, he, but that, that, as night follows day became a, a catchphrase of his for a long time. You know, he, he was, a, as I said, he was an enigma because when he, when he lost to Hawke, and that was a... A massive thing. Bob Hawke made a big mistake. He he, he thought he, he believed in his own publicity so much and his own pulling power that he um, that he had a, a, announced a campaign running about six weeks, which is unheard of for us here. And uh, and Peacock almost overtook him, and and he actually scored more. Um, votes than Hawke, but didn't win enough seats. Well, we're talking way. there about the 1984 election. Uh, Hawke had won in March 83. No, 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 no. no. The, one I'm, the one I'm talking about is, 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 is Hawke and Peacock around 1990. Yeah. Oh, that's the yeah. second yeah. one, right. Yeah, because yeah, yes. I was, um, I was um, a so-called star at Channel 7, so I hosted for once and only time. Um, the debate. The, no, no, the, Ray Martin did the debate. So I, I hosted Channel 7's live coverage from Canberra, from the tally room sort of thing. Oh, right. And they didn't know. I sat there, I remember without going to have a pee or anything, for about eight hours because 
we finally packed it in about one o'clock in the morning. There was no result. And we didn't get a result with Hawk winning until about the Thursday, the following Thursday. Yeah. Uh, and well, it, was that, it was that close. Well, that was the second time around. That the, yes. The Hawk and Peacock fought each other twice. Yes. Uh, eight, 84. Yep. Uh, and Hawk had just called an, an early election because he'd only won sort of 18 months earlier. Uh, Hawk was going through his very difficult personal period with uh, one of his daughters, um, you know, on drugs and remember with when Roslyn, he, yeah. yeah, when he cried and uh, he, he was very emotional at a media conference. And uh, I think Keating said later on that Hawke sort of just dropped his uh, his bag then. Mm. He, he, he was really in a very dark place. And Peacock campaigned really well but didn't quite win. Then How, he and Howard had this tussle for the leadership for, years, for a long yeah. time. Uh, and of course, there was the episode with uh, Jeff Kennett and the mo- and the and the, mm. uh, the car phone. What, and, and, what do you remember of that? Yeah. Yeah, oh, I remember it very well. Yeah, it was uh, it was picked up by by, by by what we we didn't call them hackers in those days. It was picked up by somebody, and uh, it was published. And uh, it was Kennett's. It wasn't Peacock. I mean, Peacock was a sound asleep, and Kennett woke him up. And if you listen to the tape again, I've heard it many times, but uh, it, it's Kennedy who's saying, using the C word and calling Howard everything under the sun, but Peacock wasn't disagreeing, but he wasn't adding to it, but it, it cost him, uh, his, his, I think it cost him his cabinet job. You know? Yeah, well, I actually happened to be in Canberra on that day when that all broke. I was wow. just on holidays, and uh, I remember... Uh, Peacock came out a little room outside the old Parliament House because they hadn't moved to the new Parliament House yet and um, we were just walking around and I saw all these journos and then I see Andrew Peacock come out of a door and he makes this speech where he he resigns and uh, then he goes in. Um, and there was that, I think it was then where he made the famous line that he, he didn't really want to be Prime well, Minister. Well, he did it twice, you know, he told somebody else once, he said... Somebody said, you know, you almost got it. He said, oh, if I ever really did want it. And yet he'd spent his life from his, from his, almost his teenage years, from his young 20s anyway, in totally engrossed in in, in, in politics. Yeah, so it was it, a very strange thing for him to say. He, he rolled his eyes. His eyes went oh. to, into the back of his head. It was a strange thing. And then, of course, Howard led the party... Uh, then Joe for PM came in and the 87 election, which Hawke again won. And then uh, I think it was uh, Michael Hodgman and uh, John Moore yeah. who, who, who organised this. Was, it was on Four Corners that they, were, uh, that they explained their coup and how they got rid of John Howard. Oh, gloating, didn't they? Yeah. Correct. And then that's how Andrew Peacock fought the 1990 election. But uh, he came so close but never became Prime Minister. Uh, he would have been disappointed, I guess. Oh, yeah, he would, he would have been shattered. He didn't show it. He's a very private person that way, but he, he would have been shattered. Funny you mentioned John Moore's name. Um John Moore was a Queensland politician, um, uh, a Liberal Party man, and uh, he was married and he had had an affair with a woman I won't name whom I became involved with in Melbourne. And one day um, he apparently was visiting, after breaking up, he was visiting, and I happened to open her apartment door with a key and walk into the fridge and get a beer before I saw he was there. <laughs> and he was beside himself that some, somebody had that familiarity. And he, he, he spluttered and he shouted at me and he said, you, you, you proletarian hero. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Oh, goodness. Go. And the funny thing when you mentioned Bob Hawke and, and his daughter Rosalind um, having the drug problems and that's causing him problems and he burst into tears. I remember, I've told this before, so I'll keep it brief. Um, he didn't announce this to the world. Um, Hazel went on television on the Willisie program and announced it, that Rosalind had a drug problem. And I remember saying to a senior, senior Labor minister, why is she doing Why did she do this? You know, why wasn't it the Prime Minister? I mean, he's the Prime Minister. And this politician looked at me and he said, he'd need an auto cue to remember his kids' names. <laughs> yes, that's... And yet he was uh, voted Father of the Year yeah, in Victoria. Well, 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 what I heard was that the night he was voted Father of the Year, he'd been at, uh, at a pub somewhere, I think in Carlton, might have been opposite Trades Hall, mm-hmm. and they had to carry him into a taxi because he'd been drinking so much to... Probably uh, the, John, John, the John Curtin Hotel. To, to, to get him home, yeah. <laughs> uh, Darren, Andrew Peacock, what, what was he like um, uh, personally? Like? Okay, he was, he, Andrew was great company. He was a great raconteur. He had stories to tell from, from decades. I mean, he was a, keep in mind, he was a terrific ambassador for Australia when he was the ambassador to Washington. Um, he was a very good foreign minister. He had relations with people on both sides, the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, George Bush Sr. Was a, was a dear friend of his. Um, and in fact, Penny, his, his wife, when he died, um, she was very close to the, uh, to, the, to the Bushes because she actually, from memory, she organised um, George Bush's inaugural balls in Washington when he was made president. So, you know, he, he, had, he had these good connections on both sides. And here in Australia, he had good connections with the, the, the Labor Party as well. You know, he, he, he didn't like the, um, all, the, all the shit fighting that went on on both sides of the chamber. You know? um, I mean, he was derided by people because of his suntan, because of his good looks, etc., etc. Um, remember Keating said, Paul Keating said, a souffle doesn't never rises twice, <laughs> and yet he almost got there. I mean, like Kim, um, Beasley got more popular votes, I think, in one election than Howard got, but just didn't get the seats. Um, got the votes to the wrong areas. Now, I mean, that that, that election where it took four days before we knew that Hawke had won, it was a, it came it was so close for, for for Peacock that time. I mean, I he was best man at my at my my wedding with Jackie and. Um, I was very proud of that. And ironically, it was in the middle of a, <laughs> a personal story on my wedding day. It was a few days before the wedding, I called him because um, they just called an election. And I said, you'll be busy campaigning. Do you want to pull out? I mean, I, I, I'll, 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 I can manage. He said, no, 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 I've made a commitment. I'll do it. I'll do it. And so he did. And he was my best man, our best man. But um, the next day, I'm, Jackie and I are going to check out of the... Uh, the, 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 the Sofitel, which was then, I think, the Sheraton back then. And uh, being best man, he had charge of my my casual clothes, my clothes I wasn't wearing to my wedding. And in the pocket of my jacket, which was the boot of his com car, were my credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> so I couldn't check out. And so... He's out campaigning, straight the next morning after the wedding, he's out, it was a Friday wedding, he's out campaigning. I managed to track him down and luckily uh, his his driver with the improbable name of Les Patterson, <laughs> as in Barry Humphreys. It's got everything, this story. Yeah, and so I get out of Les Patterson and at one stage there when they're passing by, he drops my clothes back at the hotel so I could get my credit cards out and pay my bill and go home, so... 
it, so, so he failed as a best man in, in that category, I can tell you. Well, I, but look, I, he, he, was, he was great company, and uh, we, we really, I, I really enjoyed his, his, our times together. Um, the last time I saw him, I, I was a bit, bit cruel. Um, I was having lunch with him, and a couple of, I got called saying, hey, uh, I called from somebody, said, oh, Andrew Peacock's having lunch with me today, why don't you come down to the, the rock pool at, at, at Crown? I said, oh, that'd be lovely. I didn't know he was in town. So I go down and join them for lunch. And uh, we're sitting there having lunch. And, uh, and I said to Andrew, I said, um, I said, your name just came up in my emails this morning or my, my Twitter this morning. And he said, oh, and he sort of beamed. He said, oh, how did that happen? And I said, well, uh, somebody said to me, oh, Darren, keep one thing in mind. You've achieved something in Canberra that Andrew Peacock never did. And Peacock said, what was that? I said, led your party to victory. <laughs> <laughs> because I'd just been elected a senator. And, and of course, Andrew never, never got the top job. Well, I, I got the sense that people thought he didn't have the substance to be the Prime Minister, that, that he had the, um, the appearance, he had the presentation, all that sort of stuff. Uh, do you think he would have been a good Prime Minister had he yes, just I do. gone over no, the no, line? This is, not a, this is not a personal thing. Like, yes, I do. Um, I know, um, I know he gave advice to two would-be prime ministers, and it was very cogent advice that he gave them. One was John Hewson, and he told him to, you know, get across issues like this one, this one, this one, or you're not going to make it, you know. And, uh, and we all know about how Hewson stuffed up on the GST, you know, et cetera. Um, but he also um, gave advice to uh, John Elliott. Remember when John Elliott was going to run for prime minister mm. at one stage? And uh, I know that Peacock said to Elliot, go home one night, you know, put your wine glass aside and write down everything you've ever done that, in business, even stuff that may be considered not quite right. And remember it because somebody's going to find out and somebody's going to check it out. And if you study running for office, they will come after you. And Elliot, of course, uh, came very close to being charged with various things and he didn't, in the end, didn't run. And, and probably probably wise advice, but I, I think Peacock was was actually underestimated. I mean, he was, as I said before, a very good foreign affairs minister. He was across the. I mean, he he was regarded as a god in Papua New Guinea for the way that he helped engineer uh, their their um, breakaway from Australia all those years ago. The relationship that he had with uh, John Howard, they were they were competitors. They were both going for the same thing. <clears throat> In the end, uh, Howard became prime minister and led the country for quite a long time. Well, but it, it, the sense I got, and I was young at the time, was there was a fair bit of animosity there. Oh, there uh, was. Now, I, I actually, and most Australians won't really understand or realise this because they're too young. I sort of equated Howard and Peacock and their their fighting and their animosity to uh, Nixon and the Kennedys. And that was, the Kennedys had all the style and all the money and all the class and all the, all the pizzazz, and Nixon didn't. And even when he became president, he was besotted with the Kennedys because he, he, he was like from the, the guy with his nose pressed up against the window pane, you know what I mean? And I think Howard and Peacock had that sort of thing too because Peacock had the panache, was comfortable with anybody, could talk to anybody at any time. Howard always looked like a nerdy accountant and and I think he resented uh, Peacock's panache 
I really do. Mm. Apart from just both going for the same job. There we are. Well, Peacock dressed well. I remember one Choggam when Howard was Prime Minister, uh, there was a photograph in the paper of him with his pants and his, his pants were so long that it was all sort of like cuffed up above like his a, shoes. <laughs> was a concertina. It <laughs> was a terrible photograph. I mean, how could, he, how could he not get the length of his trousers right for, <laughs> for a big event like Choggam? But that's what John Howard was like. But he had the grit, didn't he? Now, yes. now, now did Andrew Peacock actually have that grit because well, everybody maybe, everything maybe, I read says he was an he was too nice a guy for politics. Yeah, I think I think uh, that those comments are probably fairly true. Um, that he, you know, you've got to be a bastard uh, to be leader. Um, you remember, it was, it was Keating who always said, if you want a friend in Canberra, get a dog. You know, he he was married a, a couple of times. Uh, his first he, he wife married was with Susan, Susan, Susan Rossiter. Susan Rossiter, and, Peacock. And, and, and she, got in, she got in a bit, bit of trouble because she did some TV advertisements. At, at for, a, for, for Sheraton Sheets, I think it was. Yeah, now, can you believe that that became a big issue? But it just shows you how conservative we were at the he, time. He offered to resign over that. Yeah. Because his, his wife had done a commercial for Sheraton, Sheraton, Sheraton Sheets and, uh, and uh, he offered to resign over it and... Uh, the Prime Minister at the time, I think Gordon was Prime Minister probably, said, oh, don't be so stupid, and he didn't. Uh, but, yeah, but think now, although you've got, you've got, you've got uh, you know, you've got New South Wales Premier resigns over a bottle of Grange Hermitage, so mm. it, it still can happen. Uh, Susan yeah. Rossiter, she, her, her father was, uh, I think, the Speaker of the Victorian Parliament. That's right, and then, she, then, she, then she, she married some title guy whose name I've forgotten now. In New Renouf. Zealand. Renouf, that's right. Yeah, Renouf. She became Susan Renouf by the end. And they had some uh, fight about some house on oh, the they, on, on the Sydney Harbour. They did, and they had photos taken. And she was she was refusing to move out, and they had a siege situation. And all the, the TV cameras loved every second of it. You know, um, yeah. and that was that was. Uh, then he, he was married to. Um, uh, I guess my, my friendship with him increased because I had a dear friend. Still, I haven't seen her for a while, but Margaret. Margaret Peacock was actually uh, Margaret St George, and she was a PR woman for, uh, I think, for Dainty uh, organisation, you know. And so we met professionally, but then we became very good friends. And uh, with she, she and Jackie and I were good friends together. And uh, I'd sometimes have dinner with her when Andrew was in, in Canberra. Um, and then, then they split, and his third wife was, as I said, was, was, was Penny, the American, uh, Amer- very wealthy American woman, and they, they were living. I never went to their place in Texas, but Jackie did, and said it was, it was just it was idyllic. You know? mm. One of his passions was horse racing. I remember being at the Melbourne Cup in 1974. I was a young kid, and I remember seeing some guy put $500 on Leilani and thinking, my <laughs> God, where do people get this money from? And Leilani came second, uh, think yeah. big beat Leilani, but he loved horse racing. My, my, my best Melbourne Cup Andrew Peacock story was that for years, I don't know where it started, but I think he, maybe it was with Leilani. He bet me he was going to win the, American, the, 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 going to win the Melbourne Cup, okay? And, and I said, um, I bet you $100 you don't. And every year for about 10 years, we had a bet of $100 that Peacock would not win the <laughs> Melbourne Cup that year. And every year he'd come up to his half Afterwards, just handed over quietly, and that was that was it. Well, your odds were better than his <laughs> from the start. There. Yeah. Uh, well, we we salute Andrew Peacock. Um, <clears throat> people have said he's a, he was a great. Uh, he he was a significant figure in Australian. He was politics, indeed. So. He was indeed, and he, and he was a lowercase l liberal liberal on most you know, issues. He was a moderate. He wasn't. He would have. He would have hated the, the right wing crap of the George Christiansons and the Craig Kellys and stuff these days. He would he would he would be appalled by that. 
Mm. Well, you met, funny you mentioned George Christensen because he's, he's, he said he's going to leave the parliament. Um, I, I, I did. He's going to leave the parliament, yeah, and it won't be any great loss. Um, I did tweet about that and just said maybe he'll now run for mayor of Manila. Yeah, I saw, I, I, I saw that. Now, <laughs> he spends now, more time in the Philippines yeah. than he does in Queensland, I tell you. Well, I'd like to know how, how many terms he's had in the parliament and just what his pension's going to be because... Uh, well, oh, oh, he's been there for a while, but I'm not sure if he... I'm, I, I, not sure if he was there before 2004. And if you were there like me after 2004, you don't get a pension at all. Well, That's when they ended it. So if he was elected before 2004, he will get a very healthy pension. If he was elected after 2004, he won't get a dime. Well, what does he get? Uh, I mean, he, he gets nothing. If, if, you, if you were elected to the Senate or the House after 2004, you will not get a pension of any, uh, any, any form. Even People if you've been in the, in the Senate for, say, for 15 years, let's say you went in in 2005, which would now make... Is that right? That's quite true. Yeah, well, I didn't. I mean, I was only there for three years. But even if I'd been there for ten years, uh, if I stood again and, and again, uh, I wouldn't get a pension because they they ended those uh, when with changes to the pension law right. in two thousand and four. Well, that's something I didn't know. I actually think that's. Uh, I mean. I don't think you deserve a pension after three years, maybe not even after six years, but if you've given 15 years service, because, yeah. you know, it's not easy. You're away from your family, uh, you know yourself. I've never been a politician, but you have. It's, it's long hours. I tell you what, people don't <coughs> understand. They think, you know, you're part-time. They don't understand how many hours you work, how long it is, and the stuff you have to do. The, 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 I mean, if you're taking your job seriously, you've got to really read up on everything and read every bill and read the background to it and the briefing papers and stuff like that. It, it, I, I learned things. I, I, another thing I learned, I used to have a, a joke on 3AW and I used to say that why aren't public servants allowed to look out the window in the morning because they have nothing to do in the afternoon? <laughs> and I was so wrong. Uh, I know there are lurks and perks for people in, in Canberra but... The, especially the department secretaries, when we were having Senate hearings and things like that, the briefing stuff they produced was amazing. It yep. really was. Yep. Uh, I wanted to uh, touch on Anzac Day, mm-hmm. uh, Darren. We've just had Anzac Day. Um, it's a, it was a different type of event. At least we had it. Last Again. year we didn't have it um, and didn't, didn't, weren't able to commemorate it. But uh, it, it is a a special day, but I have a memory of Anzac Day in the 1970s as being a contested day. Uh, the young people of the 1960s and 70s didn't really see Anzac Day the way young people see it now. They they oh, saw it, it has as changed, and it's changed. And thank God it's changed. I think it's great the way that young people uh, react to Anzac Day now. Now, two things, and I put this up on my Facebook page on Anzac Day. Um, I hated to see wire fences around the shrine. Uh, I didn't, I didn't, just seemed against everything that we, the, 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 the Anzacs fought for, etc. And, and the shrine is probably one of the holiest places. I'm not religious, but I, I, I almost salute it when I walk past it every day on my walks. Um, it is sad that it's been so restricted. Uh, I'm encouraging you, you're quite right, that young people now are, are treating it much differently. I, every Anzac day, and I did this this time as well, I, I, I've got, I have possession of my father's medals. I have a beautiful photograph of him taken when he was in uniform in World War II. And when I was a senator, I was very fortunate to, I went with a de- parliamentary delegation to the Solomon Islands and uh, looking at things like China's um, growing influence in the Pacific. 
and I was man- I managed to be point- have the American ambassador took me around and I saw where my dad had fought at Guadalcanal. And that was a, an amazing moment for me in, in, in my life. And so, yeah, I, 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 these photos... And the thing is, they were all so young. That's what gets you now, you know. Uh, young people in the 60s and 70s saw Anzac Day as, as a glorification of war. Um, and, and the growing feminist movement saw it as a, as a glorification of sexual abuse and rape. That came into it too. Yeah, but, but really it's, you know, we should commemorate people who have given their lives... Uh, against their will You can't sometimes. give any more, Sunshine. Yeah, you can't give yeah. any more. And that's why we should. That's why this Anzac, last Anzac, this Anzac Day, I um, I said, I hope you celebrate it the way that many people have, and, and I did, and went outside with a torch. I didn't have a candle, so I went outside just holding a, a lit torch early in the morning. You know? and, yeah. and I'm lucky because I can see the shrine from my balcony in my apartment. So I, I always, on Anzac Day, if, if I haven't gone to the, to the shrine, and I, I wasn't invited this year, and there's, there's limited numbers anyway, um, but I stand on, the, stand on the balcony, salute and look at the shrine. It's a, it's a, it's, it's, I think, you see, to me, not being religious, it's, 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 it's the most important Australia Day of the year to me. I, I think you're right. And, and watching, because I've gone uh, many times... I've been to the Shrine Dawn service, but uh, watching the march, uh, mm. and you're on the side of the road, you can hear the boots as they march down the road, and the crowd is fairly silent. It's it's mm. quite an eerie respect. sort of experience. Yes, respect. Yeah. yeah it's, you um, know, that brings me back a memory, Tony. When I was at high school, I was the leader of the school band. I was the lead drummer, okay? Uh and we, we marched every Anzac Day, uh, not in the march, but we marched the, the school band down to the Cenotaph in the middle of my hometown of New Plymouth. And I stood there leading the drummers uh, as, as the, the march went past and I saw and my dad walked past and he'd, he'd wave to me you know, in the Anzac Parade while his son's playing the drums in the, in the high school band. And we were in military uniforms. We had, we had cadets in those days. So we were in, in military car keys and, and a little cap and we're there playing the drums while, while your own father uh, proudly walks past. It was a big moment. Yeah, now I'm trying to picture this. Did you have one of these, that, the big drum that you strap on your no, shoulders? No, no, I, I played play the, no, play the side drums, the, uh, the snare drums. The, and believe it or not, you, you, you have a... A, a, a leather strap around your neck, which holds the drum up, and the drum sits on your right hip, okay? But you have to walk sort of stiff-legged to keep the drum in place while you're playing, while you're right. marching. So you actually, your, your right leg is not quite bent as much as the left leg because it keeps the snare drum in place. I notice now some of them wear them around their neck and just play, play them in front of themselves. But in those days... The snare drum was always the, it's called a side drum because it was wore it on your side, and uh, and you, you you drummed properly on it with the um, with the, the marching all all the marching steps. You know, and and you've got to, to do that march in step and also do the timing right because it, right. it all depends on you, doesn't it? I mean, you yeah. get that timing wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but well, uh, it was good. I loved it. I had a couple of stripes on my sleeve and you know and all that and you and on a formal occasions we actually wear long white gloves. While we, as we marched and drummed, 
Yeah, well, there you go. It's uh, wonderful, <laughs> wonderful memories, uh, Darren. That you can, you, you've, you can. You've, you've stirred a few today. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Well, your dad fought in uh, World War Two, as yeah, you he did. said. Yeah, um, Canal and also other parts of the Pacific. You know, he did. And what I was he like when he came back? Uh, well, I, I was too young. I, 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 he, he, he went AWOL. He broke camp in Auckland to come and see Mum and me when I was born. So I was born in 1944, in the middle of the war. Um, so he broke camp uh, to, to to come and see me. I, he went AWOL a few times, I, I imagine, but there we are. And, uh, uh, but, even, so, but years later, he, did, he didn't, like a lot of guys, he didn't talk much about the war. But he told me one story, which I just remembered when I, when I was in the Solomon Islands, he said when the when the Americans recaptured the Solomon Islands from the Japanese, uh, with the Americans and and the New Zealanders and the Australians, he said they marched into a town in 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 in, in the Solomons, and there's a big sign up from like Marine Corps Forty Seven or something I don't know you know, and it said we won right, and some laconic Aussie had written underneath it we helped. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just quickly want to tell you my story. My dad fought in World War Two. He fought under the the King of Italy. There were there were there was the, the the Italian government that had soldiers and the King of Italy. Now, my dad was a conscript. Um, he fought because wow. he had to. Uh, he was in Libya. He didn't talk about it like your dad. When he was dying, he started telling a few stories. Anyway, it turns out he was captured in a famous battle of Badia. And he was captured by Australian soldiers. Good and and uh, he said the best thing that happened to him was that uh, he was captured, taken out of the theatre of war, taken to South Africa as a prisoner of war and spent five years there. And wow. uh, as a result of that, he loved South Africa, but um, it couldn't go. So we came to Australia and you and I are now talking all these years later. There That's right. Now, speaking of Italy... Uh, recently, I was I was intrigued by some of your pictures you've been putting up. You've been to some beautiful Italian club. Tell me about it. Well, I uh, I, I I do this Italian radio program, which you've yeah, been on, by the way. So I do that on a Friday morning, and lately we've been getting uh, some of the Italian clubs wanting us to do an outside broadcast there, which uh, I've done one at a club called the Casa d'Abruzzo, and uh, the, the one uh, the other day was at the Veneto Club in Bulleen Road. A lot of people would have driven past. Maybe they mm. wouldn't have. Uh, gone in there at any time. They should go in because everybody's welcome. They have the most magnificent food. We had quite a lot of people turn up and we heard some great stories of uh, migrants who came here in the 60s uh, who um, uh, established this club. They've got something like 3,000 members there and it's a real focal point, you know, because when you get old, Darren, you've got nowhere to go. You might be at home. You can always go to the Venator Club and you'll see people you know, you can play bocce, do all sorts of stuff. That's and sweet. Yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, you had me You had me with the, was it the panetta chips? It's uh, polenta chips. Polenta chips, that's it. Yeah. It's like a little brick, this thing, and you can oh. dip it into all this sort of stuff. And it is met one day, Darren. Look good, look good. One day I'd like to take you there and you can we'll have a polenta chip. We'll do it together, Sunshine. All right. Okay. Thanks, Darren. We'll see you next week. Okay, see you next week.